are back with another episode of Underrated. I'm Lefty. And I'm Bo. How are you doing today? It's been a busy week. We've got a lot going on in the world. Yeah, welcome back. I've seen snowfall twice in less than a week. Yeah, did you catch any of those uh, the highlights from the from the Maction last night? Central Michigan and Western Michigan? <laughs> yes, yeah. I saw some highlights on... Uh, yes, I still watch ESPN before bed sometimes. Oh, so, wow. Uh, yeah, I know, right? Old school. Uh, but winter's here. We talked about it earlier. The uh, the Buffalo Bills are coming off that heartbreaking loss to the Vikings, and now their uh, their game this weekend against the Cleveland Browns is being moved to Detroit. Uh, Ford Field, because both cities are expected to get destroyed by a snowstorm. You you know yeah. it's messed up when they're moving games to Detroit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know hasn't hasn't crossed the lake yet. Hasn't picked up enough snow. Uh, probably already dropped quite a bit on Detroit. I'm guessing. Which begs the question. Is the lake effect a real thing, or is it just another man-made weather event that's become a government conspiracy? I don't know. We'll save that for Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's jump over to men's college hoops. Looks like we're uh, seeing continued efforts by athletes to publicly campaign in regards to you know revenue sharing and the NCAA lefty. Yeah, um, some some big news there. Yeah. I mean, last night, Pitt took on number 20 Michigan and two athletes, uh, MU's Hunter Dickinson and Pitt's uh, Jamarius Burton, and were among a group of athletes who wrote the letter S on their hands during the game to draw attention to their attempt to advocate for a new business model of college sports, you know, the S standing for share. They're, they're hoping to change the way the NCAA and schools distribute its resources out to athletes. You know, this is the latest edition of widespread efforts that you know, shockingly has included athletes, uh, other advocates, and even some politicians, you know, shockingly enough, you know, to expand the benefits college athletes receive. So specifically talking about Dickinson and Burton, you know, their campaign is being organized by the National College Players Association, which is a group trying to change college sports through legislation, legal action, and most importantly, public pressure over the last few years. Now, Something I found interesting, Lefty. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I wasn't aware that Ivy League schools don't even offer athletic scholarships. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I believe that they started implementing them recently, right? Uh, uh, I'm not sure. From what I understand, you know, it's basically, hey, you're getting the education, so you're good. But, you know, I mean, these athletes are, are working just as hard as, you know, Division One athletes in a lot of cases and are having to make that sacrifice between what, pursuing education and or not receiving financial assistance to play sports? I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. You know that I went to a small kind of mid-major um, college in a, you know, not quite an Ivy League, but a prestigious, uh, sure. you know, conference. Probably read the book, The Last Amateurs. We're, we were pretty late to adopt scholarships in the Patriot yeah. League. Um, and it is. It's, a, it's an entirely different struggle there, obviously athletics at top tier schools when you athletically you know when you're an athlete in the sec or the the big 10 um the the commitment to athletics is a little different than it is when academics kind of take an equal seating uh in in places like the ivy league and the patriot league um so it's a difficult thing i'm surprised that the ivy league hasn't adopted them yet i was thinking that there was some kind of uh congressional action regarding that but uh I, i don't think that that's happened yet uh, right. But yeah, right. you know, I think that that definitely harms those schools in terms of athletic recruiting, but sure. I, I don't think that it actually impacts those schools 
all that much uh, in the scheme of things, especially with the new, uh, you know, NIL rules. Definitely. I believe that, uh, I mean, we can just look at, uh, you know, collegiate women's basketball. I believe yeah. it's at Princeton's starting mm-hmm. the year in the top 25. Right. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, the NIL is, a, you know, they kick the door open for these conversations, really. You know, yeah, yeah. And rightfully so. You know, this, this is something that's been going on for a long time that needs to be addressed. And uh, it's great to see so many, you know, uh, like I said, not only athletes, but also even we have some politicians, we have different advocates from different backgrounds all coming together to try and, you know, level the playing field here a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it's it's kind of interesting how this will break down when we think about the, the landscape of collegiate athletics. Um, when you have a conference like the SEC or the Big Ten or Pac-12 who make significant amounts of money in these high revenue sports like basketball and football, um, right. You know, it, it it the the model for revenue sharing is one that you know just makes common sense. Here are athletes producing all of this excess value, and they're not seeing the the fruits of their labor. Um, but I think it becomes a little more cloudy and a little murkier when it comes to those conferences like the Patriot League, the Ivy Leagues, right, when right. athletic revenue is not high. They're not bringing in tens of millions of dollars. Basically, all of that revenue is is being fed to to other you know, academic and athletic scholarships. So, so it becomes a lot more difficult for those schools, I think. Um, at the end of the day, I think a lot of student athletes will be kind of forced to to rethink their athletic decisions um, and how much they value the potential, uh, you know, money that they could get in these situations. Right, right. And like I said, you know, um, that's uh, one of the biggest part of the the issue there is that you're having to make that sacrifice and, and go one way or another, right, at this point. But, you know, hopefully as we continue to see, um, you know, these sort of, uh, you know, attempts at creating more awareness, I, I think we're going to see some changes, right? You know, yeah, yeah. historically we when it does come to public pressure and, you know, different aspects. Uh, and like I said, even legislation, we're, you know, we're seeing some changes here. So, um, you know, we talk college hoops. Let's just jump over to the NBA. You know, for a lot of celebrities, there's nothing more appealing than courtside NBA seats. But after a series of events here that we've seen just recently, you know, even in the last week, I mean, is it time to push these seats back? And I'm not, not sure if you saw this, Lefty, but... I believe a week ago at a 76ers game, a referee tripped over rapper Meek Mill's foot while he was sitting courtside and just face planted, right? Now, just the other night in Charlotte, LaMelo Bell re-injured his ankle when he accidentally stepped on a fan's foot trying to corral a loose ball late in the game. You know, he's already missed time this season due to an injury on this same ankle, and now he's out indefinitely with no timeline. Is, is there a reason that we need to be so close to the court? Like, what, what do you think here? You know, um, I don't think that that really is something that is meaningful to the majority of fans. I assume that the revenue, you know, generated from those courtside seats is high, but it's it's not high enough to offset, you know, injuring franchise players. Right. Uh, you know, obviously they're trying to, you know, cram as many people as possible into the stadium. And the closer they can move, seats to the court the the more rows they can fit into the stadium they can fit one you know second courtside row in there's another you know hundred people who will pay thousands of dollars for a seat but 
you know, it, it doesn't make sense. It's it's a, it's really similar to when they expanded the netting at baseball games recently. Yeah, you know, right. that's a protection for both fans and players. And definitely, you know, obviously, celebrities love to have their photos taken sure. right there courtside. They like that exposure, but I don't think it's good for anybody to be honest. How about right behind the bench? How about right behind the players? I mean, that's that's a that's you know that's hey. still good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're, exactly. you're talking, you're, you're talking 16 inches back, right? I think, uh, I think <laughs> yeah. we can make it <laughs> now. Uh, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's just jump into today. Lefty, uh, did you have anyone you wanted to talk about? Yeah, totally. So, you know, we're on the eve of the FIFA world cup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about it last week, the ethics of the world cup. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, not getting into that again. I thought it might be fun to dive into, you know, one of the most prolific, strange, interesting footballing and World Cup careers of all time. Okay. So when we think about the best African soccer players of all time, it's easy to think about current greats like Mo Salah from Egypt or Sadio Mane from Senegal, or even the former legends like former Ballon d'Or winner George Weah from Liberia or former Barcelona striker Samuel Eto'o. Cameroon. Mm-hmm. Today, I want to talk about a different Cameroonian forward with a career that spanned nearly three decades. Today, I want to talk about Roger Milla. All right. So, you know, Milla was an outstanding athlete as a youth. At, at the age of only 15, he was already playing professionally in the second tier of Cameroonian football. You know, two years later, he would also become the best student high jumper in the whole of Cameroon. Just incredibly, wow! Just an athletic, athletic kid. You know, by the age of eighteen, he had moved up to the top tier of football, um, and was playing with uh, Leopard Douala. And uh, by the age of twenty-one, Miller was already named to the Cameroon national squad, competing in the World Cup qualifying in nineteen seventy-three. You know, in nineteen seventy-four, he joined the notable Cameroonian club Tonnerre, where he would play the next three seasons before eventually moving to France in 1977. Obviously, the level of play in Cameroonian domestic leagues isn't exactly the highest, but as a, you know, basically a kid, Miller finished his young stint in the nation with 158 goals and 203 appearances. Impressive. Yeah, so after, after limited playing time in France, um, you know, with Valenciennes, and Monaco, which saw him only net eight goals in 45 appearances over four seasons between the two squads, he moved to SC Bastia and started the most productive stretch of his French domestic career. He played with Bastia from 1980 to 1984, and in that time made 113 appearances, scoring 35 goals. During his stint with Bastia, uh, you know, Miller joined Cameroon in their first World Cup appearance in 1982. Um, you know, he had a goal scored, uh, but it was disallowed. So walked away without any real statistics. You know, <laughs> Cameroon actually played well in that World Cup. They drew all three of their group state matches, um, but they only scored one goal. They also only surrendered a single goal, uh, which was to the eventual winners in Italy, but a, a pretty impressive first showing for, for Cameroon. Sure. So... Also with Bastia, you know, Miller joined Cameroon in the 1984 Olympics. There, again, Cameroon failed to advance past that group stage, but Miller did score his first uh, kind of high-profile high tournament goal. 
So in, in 1984, Miller moved from Bastia to Saint Etienne, where he would again find success. In two seasons with Saint Etienne, Miller featured in 59 matches and scored 21 goals. In 1986, Miller would move from Saint Etienne to Montpellier, where he would play until 1989. After failing to qualify for the World Cup in 1986, at only 36 years old, Miller retired from international football after only three World Cup appearances, three draws, and just a singular disallowed goal. Wow. But that retirement still earned Miller a parade in Cameroon. So still a highly decorated, highly celebrated player. True. Uh, Miller continued to play well domestically after his national team retirement and period in 95 games and netting 37 goals with Montpellier. He would then join St. Pierre in Reunion, uh, call back to our our earlier episode of Wendy Renard. Um, he played there uh, in 1989 to 1990, where he played well enough, not phenomenal, but, you know, he's getting up there. Definitely. So now, now you're likely wondering why a man with three World Cup matches and no real stats should be featured in an episode in which... I said I'd talk about one of the greatest World Cup careers of all time, let alone how this player could be considered underrated. Well, it's because in 1990, the president of Cameroon called Roger Miller on the phone at the ripe age of 38 <laughs> and asked if he could come out of retirement and then help the indomitable Lions in the 1990 World Cup. And Miller agreed. At 38 wow. years old, sure. Miller scored his first goal in the second game of the group stage against Romania, setting the record for the first goal scored in the tournament by the oldest player. But Miller wasn't done. He scored a second goal against Romania in that game. Cameroon advanced to the round of 16, like passed the, to the round of 16, and in a tough match against Colombia in the next round, Miller entered the game as a late substitute in the second half in a scoreless, goalless game. Miller scored to put Cameroon up 1-0. Three minutes later, Milo would dispossess the Colombian goalkeeper, leaving Milo with an easy goal and an empty net. Milo racked up two braces in two games, leading Cameroon to become the first African nation ever to reach the World Cup quarterfinals. Crazy. While Cameroon did lose in the next round to England, Milo contributed with an assist in that match. His performance in the 1990 World Cup would lead him being named to the World Cup All-Star team, winning the bronze boot, and being the African Footballer of the Year at age 38, an award that he had first won 14 years earlier. Wow. So after that World Cup, uh, Miller returned to his early club, Tonnerre, in Cameroon, where he'd spend the next four seasons. In 1994, six years after his first retirement, at the age of 42, Miller returned to the World Cup again. Uh, while Cameroon was knocked out during the group stage, Miller set the record for the oldest player ever to appear in a World Cup game. It's since been broken, but he also broke his own record for the oldest goal scorer after he netted a goal against Russia. Oh, man. So after that tournament, Miller still wasn't done. He continued playing two more seasons with clubs in Indonesia before finally retiring in 1996. All told... Keep in mind that that retirement in 1996 was a decade after he had first retired from the international team. Right, right. So all told, between league and cup games, Miller appeared in 794 matches and scored a staggering 438 goals. 
Over his long career, he actually only played in 77 games for Cameroon. But he did score 43 goals um, in his 1990 World Cup. You know, will continue to live on as one of the greatest and most impressive World Cup performances in memory. You know, nice. after his retirement, he was named one of the 100 greatest footballers of all time by World Soccer Magazine, named to the Confederation of Africa's football's best African player of the last 50 years, and he was included in Pele's uh, 2004 FIFA 100 list of the 125 best players of all time. Not quite wow. the 100. <laughs> Uh, so that leads me to the final question. Is Rajan Milla another player who was productive in lower-level domestic leagues and then just got lucky in one World Cup run? Or is Roger Milla underrated? No, I think Roger Milla is underrated. You know, we talk about 1990 specifically, right? And he's 38 years old. I mean, so we're talking... 20 years of professional soccer. He's 20 years into his career already, right? When we think of a number like 38 in the sports world today, um, it has a little bit of a different meaning, right? We see LeBron James, we see Tom Brady, we see athletes like this. And it's fairly common now as we're seeing this, but the conditioning and the players today are in a totally different place, right? You know, He's one of the most successful players in Cameroon's history. And to see the success at this point in his life is pretty amazing when you look at it. You know, leading up to that, like you had touched on, Lefty, he spent most of his career just playing in France. I mean, he was putting up pretty good numbers, right, for a series of really good teams. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So, I mean, now he's leaving France and he's sunsetting his career essentially right you know for this tiny club right it, 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 basically yeah, nowhere yeah. you know i mean this at this point everyone's looking at it and saying okay you know he's 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 in the twilight of his career but the performance doesn't say that you know and to be able to build that up you know if we if we talk about specifically uh you know 1990 I, I think one of the biggest issues there is that if you read anything about that that team they weren't very good <laughs> and yeah, yeah. going into this you know I, I think a lot of people were stressed out and, and didn't know what hey do you remember uh, Roger Milla do you remember that guy you know uh, he's coming back you know so you know I, I, th I think that you know, he was an underdog even at that point. But um, no, absolutely. I, I think the success and the ability to put on those sort of performances, especially in the last, you know, handful of years of your career is outstanding. To perform at that level, at that age, with the level of competition, you know, on an international turf is, is pretty crazy. And um, you don't hear too much about the performance, right? Camer Cameroon has a very rich, you know, football history. Yeah, Many yeah. amazing players, right? And it is, it's it's more than a sport in Cameroon. It's like a religious experience, right? I yeah, mean, that's yeah. how they feel about this. And still, you know, now in the history books, you know, but uh, obviously 
he's probably one of the top three players ever to come out of the country, but the recognition I, I don't believe is there. I believe he's, he's, he's very underappreciated and, uh, you know, again, I, I, I don't think he, he's gotten the respect he deserves. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, we can contrast this, you know, the way that he decided to, you know, come out of retirement when his country called upon him, um, you know, extended his career in a way that he didn't foresee happening, um, you know, just because he was asked to by his country president, um, you know, with another recent experience we have, I'm sure that you've you've read about and seen the uh, the re- recent controversy around Cristiano Ronaldo. Of course. Um, and, you know, Ronaldo's a year younger than than Milo was when he was called out of retirement for his country. Sure. And, and you know, people can talk about who the, the best player of all time is, and I'm not arguing that Milo is, but I think that most people would rather have and celebrate the career of a player who was willing to do whatever he could when asked, contrasting to what we've seen from Ronaldo just this week, um, you know, Millie is the type of the type of player that you know all fans can enjoy. Definitely, and you know, I looking back, they're they're gonna remember his antics in the 1990 and 1994 World Cup, right? You know, this wasn't just some old guy who knew how to find the net. There was still, you know, um, a true ability uh, there at that point. Um, you know, aside from being the oldest player to score at a World Cup, I mean. We're talking also a you know two-time African footballer of the year, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, um, he never won a major league, but he scored consistently in Cameroon and in France, and you know he absolutely is remembered for that. But these performances late in his life are just outstanding. We talk about Ronaldo, and I mentioned LeBron James earlier, and I mentioned Tom Brady. Those three, if you look at the performances at this point in their careers now, you know, Tom Brady being the exception at, you know, 44, 45 years old, the other two, we've seen the abilities start to go downhill, right? They're just not the players that they were. And it's very, very clear. You can see that. They're not game changers. Obviously, Tom Brady's just coming off of a Super Bowl a couple of years back. But still, at all, you're seeing, you know, the inability to perform. We didn't see this in uh, in Roger Miller at this point in his career. Yeah, we yeah. didn't see this. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and you think about the, the, you know, kind of not super related to that, but what what was happening in africa during this time period that he started his career you know he oh, yeah. he, he began yeah. he, he was born and lived through before he even became a professional footballer you know cameroon was a colony of both france and the uk like right, at right. different points in his early life so yeah. you, when you when you think about you know the way in which colonialism impacts international football you know it's very arguable that some of the, the better players out of Cameroon and their their rich football legacy, especially, you know, before that independence, likely were, you know, pulled by English and French squads. Sure. Um, so, you know, to, to give the nation another player to celebrate, um, you know, and make them, you know, bring them to their first World Cup, 
also become the most successful African nation at the time in terms of, you know, World Cup performance. Uh, just another layer of things to celebrate about Mila. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. No, completely agree. You know, again, a rich history. Um, you know, they've been fortunate enough to have some outstanding players and just seem to just find generational talent that stand out in the history books. And, you know, Roger Miller is, is up there for sure. But like I said, you know, I just don't feel like his name is in the conversation for the most part and his performances due to just the nature of, you know, the trajectory of how his career, um, you know, started, ended, restarted and then ended. Um, you know, it was a little bit of a roller coaster ride, and uh, I just don't think anyone appreciated, um, you know, at the time and, and still now today. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, tangentially related, um, how do you think uh, Cameroon will do in the World Cup this year? Man, I hope great. I I hope great. I really do. You know, Cameroon is uh, again they're they're always a team, and in you know recent years they're they're fast they're agile they're just always seem to be exciting to watch whether they're you know as good as they can be or maybe they don't have the the the, the quality that they've had you know over time but you know always always fun to watch you know their team and their players yeah yeah unfortunately they did get a maybe the toughest group there in group g with brazil and switzerland but uh, yeah yeah hoping for the best there for so, sure yeah i think we both agree Roger Mella underrated. I'm gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we are back. So after that uh, enthralling conversation about Roger Mella in the World Cup, is there anybody you wanted to talk about today, Bo? Yeah, well uh I wanted to talk about a former NFL wide receiver. Widely considered to be one of the best at his position during the era he played in, but also possibly one of the most underappreciated and underrated of that era as well. So today we're going to talk about former Super Bowl champion, and he was a Buffalo Bill for two weeks. We're going to talk about <laughs> Anquan Bolton. <laughs> I had nice. to throw that in there. <laughs> of course, of course. Now, during the time of his career, it's really easy to see why a receiver you know, in that era can be overlooked when you have guys like Terrell Owens, Randy Moss, Calvin Johnson, and help, you know, a, a, your teammate for a good chunk of your career is Larry Fitzgerald. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's easy to understand how your name can kind of fall on the back burner a little bit, but you know, let's talk about this man's career a little bit. You know, not many people realize that Anquan Bolden was a quarterback all through high school. It was only until he made it to Florida state that he was converted into a wide receiver. You know, he had a successful collegiate career there, but NFL scouts trashed this guy when he ran a 4.740 at the NFL Combine prior to the 2003 NFL Draft. You know, with that, his draft stock died a little bit, but he was still taken second round, 54th overall by the Arizona Cardinals. Now, in his rookie season, he set multiple new records. And on day one, I mean... Most receiving yards by a rookie in his first game ever with 217. Most yards from scrimmage by a rookie in his very first game. You know, this this kind of set the tone for what was ahead. In 2004, he became the only rookie to be selected to the Pro Bowl. 
In 05, he and teammate Larry Fitzgerald became only the third duo in NFL history to each catch over 100 receptions and top the 1,400-yard mark. You know, by wow. 2008, he became the fastest player in NFL history to have 500 receptions. Fastest player ever. And then he follows that up by helping his team make it to the Super Bowl where they ended up losing to the Steelers. But, you know, by 2009, he became the the fastest NFL player to record 7,000 receiving yards. You know, if you want to talk about athleticism, he was a beast. He wasn't flashy. His highlights don't usually appear as nice from a casual fan as they do from someone who's pretty hardcore into the sport and, you know, watches it quite a bit. But he could catch passes in tight spaces. He had some of the best hands in the game. He could take hits. He wasn't afraid to, you know, run across the, the middle of the field. And he would win jump balls against some of the best defensive backs in the game. It seemed like his lack of speed, as they mentioned, quote unquote, at the combine, really like naturally heightened all of his other abilities. You know, in 2010, Bolden was traded to Baltimore. He'd spend his next three seasons there. But with a top back in Ray Rice and Joe Flacco, who really was somewhat limited at that time, even early in his career, failed to reach the thousand yard mark in receiving both, you know, all three seasons. You know, something he had done five of the seven previous ones in, in Arizona. But yeah, he was yeah. without a doubt a key metric in this team's success during his stint with the Ravens. In, in 2010, they made the playoffs. 2011, they made it to the AFC Championship. And then in 2012, Bolden was again in the Super Bowl where he finally got his first title when they defeated the 49ers. He finished that postseason with 22 receptions, 380 yards, and four TDs. But that was it for his time in Baltimore. In the offseason, they traded Bolden to the, those same 49ers. He just helped them beat. You know, he'd spend his next three seasons in San Francisco. And by 2015, he surpassed 13,000 career receiving yards. He he had a, a one-year stint with the Detroit Lions in 2016 and played for the Buffalo Bills for two weeks before abruptly retiring. And I say abruptly, even though he was in his late 30s, around the age of Roger you know, Milla uh, when he got that call, but it was abrupt for some other reasons that we'll jump into. Now, talking about numbers, 1,076 career receptions, 14,000 receiving yards almost, 82 touchdowns, three Pro Bowl selections, two Super Bowl appearances. I mean, he was ready for another season in 2017, but something changed his mind. Now, back in 2015, he actually won the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. His foundation... Q81 has has helped underprivileged children still to today and hundreds of high school students as they successfully complete course forgiveness prior to graduation. In in 2014, Bolden and his wife funded a million dollar endowment in hopes of helping underserved students. Um, that's how involved in the community um, he was and his wife as well. Now, when he made the decision to leave the game, he was quoted as saying, Football has afforded me a platform throughout my career to have a greater impact on my humanitarian work. And at this time, I feel drawn to make the larger fight for human rights a priority. My life's purpose is bigger than football. And his decision to retire came just days after what Bolton called the tipping point for himself. 
after seeing the deadly and racially charged conflict in Charlottesville, Virginia. He was just disturbed by the hateful messages even post that event that he saw directed at the LGBTQ community, Jewish people, and African Americans following that tragic event and said, I think the only way that this America changes is that we as a people stand up and change it. You know, a little bit of background, you know, he's lobbied for criminal justice reform at the state and federal levels since his cousin was killed by a plainclothes officer along the side of a Florida highway back in October of 2015. And as difficult as it was to walk away from football, he said he couldn't stand silent anymore on the sideline. He wanted to be involved. So to sum this up, Lefty, he left the game within arm's reach of a ton of milestones that would that would place him among the best in history, but they were within arm's reach. On the surface, to somebody like me, his stats seem Hall of Fame worthy, but because of the competition at that time, at his position, it doesn't make it certain. He had an array of gifts, unlike a lot of players. It wasn't traditional athleticism. He created opportunities. The fact of the matter is he only finished top five in catches twice and top 10 three times. He only finished top five in receiving yards once and top 10 three times. Top five in receiving touchdowns once, top 10 twice. Never was selected to an all-pro team. Never. First or second. So this bears the question. Is Anquan Bolden an underrated and underappreciated athlete and activist lefty? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think he's one of those players on the field um, who, who suffered from not always being the touchdown threat. Like, right. obviously, you know, one of the greatest natural receivers, 14th all-time, as you mentioned, in receiving yards, ninth mm-hmm. in receptions. So clearly was was a target, but, you know, was the first down target, not the deep threat. He wasn't the, right. uh, he wasn't Torrey Smith in Baltimore. He wasn't. Um, Larry Fitzgerald in Arizona, um, right. and he, while he was, you know, largely the main target in San Francisco, um, the the touchdown target was always Vernon Davis, right? Sure. So he's he's a player that suffered in that regard, from, you know, being the first down receiver, the guy that picked up the yards, the chunk yards down the field, um, and got them into the red zone. Uh, not always the person that scored. And I think he right. suffered a little bit from that, and obviously the the shortened career. You know, didn't help his his overall numbers, and he was right. you know slowly slowly declining. Sure. wasn't great in 2016, but definitely could have earned a roster spot. Could have helped that 2017 Bills team. Right. Um, so definitely is underrated as a player in that regard. And you know, after walking away from the game for you know larger reasons, definitely underrated in that regard as well. You know, any any player that pivots their platform um, to help people as a whole is, is somebody that anybody can get behind. Um, and you wonder how much, you know, after playing for, what was it, four seasons, three seasons in San Francisco? Uh, yeah, you know, three seasons. Behind Kaepernick and watching, you know, Colin Kaepernick's struggles there. Um, sure. You wonder how much that influenced his decision making um, and, and seeing that it is a viable path, you know, stepping away from the game. Uh, for those lobbying efforts, for those, you know, humanitarian work is something that, you know, 
is a reasonable thing to do. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm sure that he saw that in San Francisco and that helped influence his decision a little bit. Um, but yeah, absolutely. definitely an underrated player and a, definitely an underrated person. Yeah, absolutely. You know, at, at a position that was, has been long defined by style and flash, you know, he was sort of, you know, the player, again, we touched on guys like Marvin Harrison, uh, Eddie George, athletes like that, were, you know, they're the exception, right? And, you know, there are just times when you look back, especially during these playoff runs, where you just see that Bolden wasn't built like the rest of these the, the these wide receivers at his position. And, you know, if you go back through the highlights of the four-game stretch that 2012 postseason, it's really taking everything that was great about his career and putting it right in your face as a fan. It seemed like every catch was a contested catch. He was making catches that, that nobody else was making, right? And yeah, yeah. at a time when they needed him. And, you know, he was he had the ability to do that. You know, um, his style made it seem like he had a never-ending career. Not saying that he would have been highly productive. We're probably looking at, you know, 40, 50 receptions per season had he played a, another couple years. But, you know, his game never predicated on the physical abilities, you know, that teams typically look at and, and want. It's, um, you know, even in his last season, he still hauled in 60 receptions, right? Um, had he played, you know, 2017 was the year that the Bills broke their 17-year playoff drought. You know, they had finally put it together there. I, I firmly believe Bolden would have been a significant part of that success had he been, you know, on the field. But it's the humanitarian work, you know, that really stands out. The ability to walk away from millions of dollars where, you know, Anquan Bolden could have went out there, played seven or eight games, sat on the bench or got hurt, and continued to do this and would have gotten an opportunity for at least another couple of years, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I do agree with you. I firmly believe seeing, seeing you know, the, the Kaepernick situation and the social activism there and everything that he went through and was highly affected by that, you know, in so many different ways. It just hit home. Um, and, you know, to see somebody consistently doing this and having and being vocal about it, uh, an event like what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, just affect them to the core where they say, you know, listen, I can't do this anymore. I can't be out here, have this platform and not be able to strictly focus on this, I think is huge. And, uh, you know, not a lot of people care enough about topics like we've just discussed, you know, yeah, and yeah. Bolden again, not built like the majority of us. We're yeah, willing totally. to step away, you know? So um, I feel like in an oversaturated wide receiver market during his era and Quan Bolden again you know couldn't agree more with you know what you touched on um more of a situational presence right uh he wasn't ever the guy um yeah I feel yeah like well he was and obviously appreciated. obviously he was the leading receiver there for 
I mean, maybe he split the split the numbers with Torrey Smith there in uh, sure in Baltimore, but he was definitely the leading receiver in San Francisco. But it also wasn't it wasn't a one hundred percent you know pass focused offense. Exactly, and, and exactly. you know he he was also very unlucky in that. I mean, fortunate as a player and a human to have you know spent such a large portion of his career in Arizona there with Larry Fitzgerald, but right. as a as a statistical player, that's such a tough break right to be paired up with one of the greatest receivers of all time who also in in a similar way is also a little understated in their in their actions yeah absolutely again larry fitzgerald you know one of my all-time favorites absolutely um you know it's uh it's hard really to look at how those two perform together at the same time and to see those numbers and just to think that that's possible. And, you know, again, if you look at it, it, Kurt Warner, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. He did it in St. Louis years before with Torrey Holt and Isaac Bruce. And then again, you see him do it in Arizona and it's just, you know. Well, you know, it it makes you wonder how much Kurt Warner benefited from them you know how how successful Kurt Warner oh, was absolutely at, you know how good he was as a quarterback that late in his career versus having you know two of the most sure-handed receivers in you know NFL history right exactly and definitely um I think we both agree Anquan Bolden 100% underrated individual as a whole I think yeah absolutely general. absolutely so, so listen I, I I gotta ask you you know you want to touch on this Ivan Tony story you know, um, I don't know if I'm the person to to jump into this. <laughs> honestly, I, yeah, I've been think it's, it's going to be a little bit of a biased, uh, you know, well, point of view. Well, you know, the the thing that's that has really stood out to me as you know a, a newer Premier League fan, and obviously someone who is not embedded in the rich cultures and history of of England, <laughs> is you know just how odd gambling culture is there specific specifically surrounding you know football soccer um yeah so it, that that's a difficult for me i find that entire system the entire cultural structure surrounding gambling and the premier league and the whole you know english football association to be very odd and problematic and something right. that uh definitely needs some rectifying uh, I think a yeah. day of reckoning is coming, um, and but obviously, you know, as someone who does not live there, is not immersed in that culture, probably not the person to speak onto it. But at the same time, you know, you've got half of the teams in the Premier League with either a primary or secondary sponsor on their jersey. You know, yeah, of course, pr- right? Promoting a c- online sports betting many of which are not legal in the UK. They are advertising a service to a foreign audience or encouraging UK citizens to gamble in ways that are illegal. Um, yeah. You know, I, something else that stood out to me is that if you go on to the football association, I guess we should probably give some some background on this situation. Right, um, right, yeah. To our listeners. So Ivan Tony, the Brentford striker, um, is being charged by the English Football Association with, you know, 232-odd bets that he placed on soccer games in a five-year period ended in 2021, um, four-year period. Um, 
He has not yet responded to those, but it, it, it appears that he will be suspended or fined uh, for gambling on soccer. So far, it looks like it's not on his own team or you know his own performance in any way, but at the same time, um, it is against the rules in yes. English soccer. But as I'm as I'm alluding to here, I think that there is a cultural problem that promotes the type of behavior that they're trying to outlaw that they have never addressed and probably will never address. Uh, And uh, what what stood out to me is that if you wanted to say you're a player, say you're Ivan Tony, and you want to read the Football Association rules on how to handle yourself as an athlete in terms of gambling, you are directed to a webpage (laughs) full of rules, right? And the header of that website is a picture of a player wearing a kit with a casino sponsor on it. Of course. Um, A casino that might not be legal in that country. It's hard to determine. At best case scenario, they are legal in that country. Um, So so I did some digging into this yesterday. If if you wanted to, if you wanted, you know, to, to, to look at this company that they are promoting on their rules about gambling, um, the, the best case scenario is that they are legally able to operate in the United Kingdom, but the company that operates them just last month was fined over a, almost a million dollars by the UK government for failing to uh, ensure proper safeguards against terroristic money laundering. Mm-hmm. And more importantly and more distressingly, that same casino that is on the Football Association's page giving out rules about gambling was found guilty of continuing to market and send promotional casino items to addict gamblers who had voluntarily removed themselves. Um, I, I forget the term, but you can add yourself to a list of, of you know, so yeah, that it, blacklisting yourself essentially. Yeah. So a, a person who is addicted to gambling, sure. Yeah. Can can ask to be you know blacklist themselves so no casinos operating in the United Kingdom right. will contact them and they won't allow them to gamble there. Right. So this casino on the Football Association's rules page about gambling continues to market to people who are recovering gambling addicts. And who were actually making an attempt to stay as far away from it as possible. Exactly. And <laughs> so so I don't know how you can culturally justify these these bans of, of gambling when it is so encouraged up to the point of you looking up the rules uh, surrounding gambling. Right. And, and, you know, it's even worse at Brentford when you, when you think about that that program, you know. It, the team was uh, purchased a few years back by an, a man named Matthew Benham, uh, who acquired the funds to buy a Premier League level team because he developed algorithms that allowed him to create better odds in an online casino and made millions of dollars running an online sports book. Yeah. yeah. That he still operates to this day. Right. And leverages yeah. the, the yeah. Brentford social media to hire advanced, like, uh, you know, advanced positions within that company at his sports sure. book that he can't 
legally bet in because he owns a team, but he still operates. He's, he's exactly. He can still operate. He can still own a professional team, a professional club. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's so like, it's, it's, it's so contradictory. Everything about this whole situation, man. Right. I mean, obviously at the end of the day, the onus of responsibility falls on Ivan Tony for, for betting on football when it's pretty widely known you're not supposed to do that. At the same time, every single thing in his life from the sponsor on his shirt which is Hollywood Bets to the person signing his paycheck who owns a sports book to the rule book from the league um, which encourages him to visit an online casino that's probably not legal in the United Kingdom and also continues to reach out and you know pressure addicts into continuing to gamble um, it, it, it's, it's just a remarkably dumb situation that yeah. uh, I, I think all, all you know at the end of the day falls back on the football association sure yeah it's you know it's it's exactly and you know i i think everyone for the most part recognizes just the how absurd the situation is right and it's no different than you know other major sports you know we talk about the nfl you've got a guy like you know uh former falcons now who calvin ridley yeah, uh, yeah. A great wide receiver for the Falcons, obviously suspended for for one year for for gambling, right? For for betting on sports, you know, he was just traded at the deadline to Jacksonville, why suspended? And meanwhile, you, there's articles right now about the return of Deshaun Watson, yeah, in, in in Cleveland. We don't have to get into all that, but this is how we we choose to operate, right? Yeah, we, yeah. Well, we, I mean, we could have a situation like this. Well, and even in the last week, like. You know the the collapse of the cryptocurrency trading uh, website uh, FTX, yeah. which was promoted by you know most notably Tom Brady. Tom Brady, here Matt is Damon, a, here, the, he, all, all these celebrities. Yeah, so here's a, here's a prominent football player who, who isn't gambling on the sport, but encouraging you know uh, just normal people to invest in what is obviously a not legitimate, not stable thing. Sure. It's just a just a all of sports has a gambling problem, but I, I do believe that English football in particular um, really takes the cake there when it term when it comes to just how thick and heavy they 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 promote this. I mean, even even if you look at the lower leagues, you know, um, below the Premier League, you have leagues that are literally sponsored by. Sports books. They're literally called Skybook, Sp- Skybet yeah, League yeah, One, Skybet League Two. Sure. And yet, a, a player can wear wear a jersey promoting an online sports book with a logo on the on their sleeve that has the sports book in their league name. Um, yet, you know, can potentially in their career uh, by utilizing right. the services they're required to endorse. Right. Yeah. Hundred percent. I mean, it's it, like I said, it's a, it's a, every everything is just seems to be contradictory to something else, right? And it's never handled correctly, even though the the obvious is there. We just had the discussions about the NCAA. I mean, I can literally be a nobody, and if somebody took a picture of me and used it for business purposes in a court of law, I could sue them, right, and get paid for it. And yet we have student athletes whose name photographs, autographs, merch, 
everything is being used and universities do not want to give them a slice of the pie, right? Yeah. They'll yeah. do anything to not do that. And they will continue to make money over and over and over and over and over. We're talking, you know, millions and millions of dollars and yet still don't feel like player athletes or student athletes um, have a right to, to any of those funds. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's pretty crazy. And, you know, even today, uh, even the fan bases, you know, I, I find it to be ridiculous when some of these players are, um, you know, have you know, just like with Ivan Tony or with Calvin Ridley, athletes like that. Uh, and they're just appalled. How dare you? Why? You know what? How can how could you? When you can't even go on to ESPN.com and not see a DraftKings ad, yeah, you know, yeah. or or get on a social media and and see something from BetMGM or or or, or, or whatever the case is, right? Yeah, I mean, you you can't even look up the information about a game without being pushed to gamble on it in some way. Absolutely, and it's just and you can I mean you can bet on college sports, you can bet on anything, and yet it's just this you know, uh, forbidden thing. Don't do it. You know, it's, it's not allowed. You can't do that. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. like I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like a jerk here, but like it, if I'm betting on myself, that's, I mean, that's confidence. Okay. If, yeah. How, how do I know who's going to win? Yeah. <laughs> are well, are we saying the games are fixed now? You know, and well, which and obviously, out, but. obviously there are situations where you, we, we think about, uh, um, uh, who was it? Who's your uh, your Newcastle back Trippier? Who yeah, yeah. Was suspended uh, was it last year, two seasons ago. Yeah. After he leaked information to some friends about a potential transfer, and then they gambled on that transfer. Sure. Yeah. It, yeah. Totally different situation, but like in terms of just normal games, as long as it's not specific outcomes, uh, right? Just just wild. It is. It really is, and it's a uh, it's a shame, you know. I mean, uh, it it has to be addressed some way or another. You know, there's got to be some balance here. So yeah, hopefully yeah. we see that at some point. But this will be interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know if you saw this or not, but uh, you know, speaking of uh, African footballers, uh, you know, Sadio Mane will not yeah. uh, take yeah. part in the in the World Cup. Yeah, you just announced earlier today, right? That. Uh, He'll be out. Yeah, yeah. With injury. Uh, that's unfortunate because you know he's he's getting up there in age. Uh, probably won't have the the same type of longevity as our our friend uh, Roger Miller. Uh, right, exactly. So this this is probably his last shot. Uh, yeah. I don't. And that, that's an un- unfortunate. I don't know. I don't think Senegal likely had uh, a deep run in them, but at the same time. Uh, you know, phenomenal player, you know, just finished, uh, what, second in the Ballon d'Or uh, just a right. few weeks back. Right, uh, yeah. It, yeah. You know, it's unfortunate for fans of the game that they won't be able to see them, you know, one of the best players in the world. Definitely. I mean, uh, two-time African player of the year, right? I mean, yeah. um, they've got their first game on the 20th coming up against the Netherlands. Again, uh, a tough game, obviously, but uh yeah, I, I think for a lot of fans, it's a, it's a disappointment, and I think that's going to be tough. And at this stage in his career, like you said, you know, my, my next point was going to be this could be his last shot, right? Um, so, you know, it's unfortunate. You know, I, I don't know the extent of the 
the injury as far as timeline goes, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Absolutely. So before we wrap up here, do you want to give any last second, uh, world cup predictions? Oh man. I don't know. You know, I looked into, uh, doing a bracket challenge. Um, I came across this obviously, uh, the other night and I thought about doing it, but even at that point, I'm like, Oh man, you know, it would really just be throwing a lot at the wall. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, th- I think the brackets are a little more fun after you progress past the group stage. Right. <laughs> Definitely. What about you? What do you, what, what do you think? So in, in the near future for, uh, for the world cup, you know, it's a difficult one. Um, I, I like Spain. I think France has a good shot. Um, you know, this is probably, I mean, is definitely Lionel Messi's last World Cup, so you'd like to see Argentina potentially win one. Uh, sure. But, uh, yeah, Brazil are obviously the, the odds-on favorites, but uh, I don't know if they actually they have it. Neymar's in good form, but uh, hard to say if they can actually pull it out. I, I, I think I'm leaning towards France or Argentina. What, uh, what, are, what are the big games you're looking forward to watching here coming up? Uh, in the near future, uh, you know, USA kicks off uh, against Wales, which should be a pretty decent game. Um, you know, that's the only one I've really got checked on my <laughs> on my list at the moment, but I'll definitely, uh, you know, be checking some others out. Um, are you going to watch the opening game there with Qatar? Yeah, I I, I am. Um, I'm going to be tuning in. Um, I just want to just kind of gauge, you know, uh, just the vibe, I guess we can say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but I think it's an exciting time. You know, World Cup is 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 always an exciting time for this sport, and I think a lot of fair weather fans, n- new fans, it's it's just really a great time. There's there's so much pride and excitement that surrounds the World Cup that it really, it's just a really exciting time. You yeah, know, and it's a yeah. great time to be a fan. Yeah, well, and, you know, specifically United States fans got pretty lucky with uh, that, that you know, biggest game of the group stage against England happening on, on uh, Black Friday. Most right. people are off work, happening in the afternoon. Everybody can sit down and watch that. Uh, unlike a lot of these games that are happening at, uh, you know, odd hours halfway around the world uh, on, on a Wednesday or Thursday. Right. I uh, I know nothing about Ecuador's squad, so... Um, that, that'll be interesting here, you know, uh, so that's a, it's well, a good time. I, you unfortunately, know? I believe that Qatar might be the worst team in the world cup. Yeah. Uh, so I, money's on Ecuador in that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'll definitely be tuning in. That's uh, a good time to late morning, you know, here, For sure. uh, you know, whether you're central or Eastern. So that's a, uh, it's a good time. You'll be up Absolutely. early. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's going to do it all for us today. Uh, you can check out this episode and all episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts can be found. You can follow us on Twitter at underratedpod. That's at under underscore rated underscore pod. Uh, you can follow us on TikTok at the same address. And you can uh, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash underratedpod. Until next time. Until next time.